da camraia, tradi sunai conmengri. Chaig hedu simba talkis pimichir, ca talkis piche. Welcome to Con Larry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me down the road a ways is William Annis. Howdy. And uh, Mike will not be here today. He's had some scheduling issues, so he couldn't make the recording. Um, today, um, well, first, how are you doing, Ryan? <laughs> I haven't seen you for a bit. <laughs> I'm doing fine. Doing fine. Um... I'm now editing the Fiat Lingua journal that the you know LCS puts out once a month. If everyone, anyone wants to write a paper, let me know. Okay. And I will help shepherd and guide and provide editorial rec- you know, recommendations and get things published. That's what I will do. Uh, things are doing fine for me, too. <laughs> I'm, I am neck deep in uh, phonology research. And mostly. also still married, I assume. And still married, yes. <laughs> but yes, I have I have phonology and syntax research that I'm doing. That's just like reading, reading tons of papers. When will um, you look at data? What? When will you look at actual data? Well, um, I will look at actual data once I collect it. I am I I do have pro uh, projects where I'm planning to collect data. I just need to you know get get down what my procedure is, what materials I'm going to use, and also get IRB stuff done and all that stuff. Oh, God, IRBs, yes. (sighs) IRB is not not particularly difficult for the things I'm going to do because it's like surveys. I'll do a little bit of uh, recording, but like most linguistic stuff does not is not really going to have too much much issue with the IRB because usually you don't, especially like experimental stuff, the only times that it gets to be a pain from what I understand is like if you're working with um, certain minority groups, like right. if you're working on Native American languages, right? it's like you have to, you have to uh, deal with a higher standard and also you, uh, a lot of times you have to get some approval from the tribal government, things like that. But I'm not doing any of that work. I'm doing <laughs> some Spanish stuff and some Chinese stuff right now. Uh, I may do branch out into other things later. Uh, but yes, PhD, grad school is, is a lot of stuff. Yeah, stuff. That's an excellent word for that. Stuff. <laughs> but, um, anyway, we are actually on Conlangery today, going to talk about a Native American language. Specifically, we're going to talk about Navajo, Yay. which, um, William, you, you know a lot more about it than me because you've read, like, several books on it and such. And tried to learn it, but it's hard mm-hmm. to do because Madison <laughs> is not overrun by Navajo speakers, not surprisingly. No. Although, um, so I did a little bit of background uh, research, um, with Navajo. It is, um, it's an Athabascan language. Um, 
looking at a couple of different sources, it looks like there are over a hundred thousand speakers. Yeah. Um, though those are like census numbers, which are self-reported, so it's hard to tell. Like the when it's self-reported, it's hard to tell. Like it could be over or under by a certain amount because of you know people reporting that they speak a language when they are maybe semi-speakers or something. Sure. Uh, but um, out of the Native American languages in North America, at least, um, it's one of the healthier ones. The healthiest. Yes. Uh, it's, it's Far more than any other in um, yeah. the United States. You know, in North in Canada, there might be some that are stronger. But in the United States, Navajo is far away the, the best in um, terms of health and number of speakers and number of kids still learning it from childhood. Yes. Although it's still not like... It's not like safe. No, none of them are safe. That's true. It's 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 one one thing I was looking at said that it is sort of losing speakers, and uh, it's not it's not necessarily used at home as much as uh, some people would hope. But uh, it's it's still uh, reasonably healthy, uh, which is more than can be said for a lot of those languages. But um, let's get into more of the uh, sort of linguistics side of things and talk about the actual language. Um, uh, William, I'm going to let you take over for a bit. You, you, you can, um, you can, uh, you can talk about all the wonderful bits of about Navajo here. <laughs> right. So, um, right. Athabascan language, which means that it has um, an enormous abundance of coronal consonants. Mm. Um, that is to say, things pronounced off the tip of the tongue. Um, let me get the chart. So it's very disappointing. The um, Navajo language Wikipedia article used to be very good and nice and long, but someone decided that that was against some obscure standard, and so now it's very short and not terribly informative, frankly. Um, but they do still give the phonology chart. And so mm -hmm. you have plain, lateral, uh, affricate, and palato-alveolar, uh, unaspirated, aspirated, and ejective stops for everything. So you have t, 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 etc. It's a, and yeah, um, it's, this says it only has, uh, the plain p. It doesn't have aspirated or ejective p. Yep. There's, the p is very, um, not well represented. Of course, because it's Navajo, um, and it's the unaspirated sound, it's always spelled b. <laughs> right? So they spell, uh, the unaspirated with voiced, even though it doesn't have voiced stops. Um, well, uh, I could get into that, but let's, let's just. It does not have voiced stop phonemes. Right. Um, right. so it has lots of those, and it can get a little confusing sometimes if you're trying to learn a new verb, and all of them are T or N of some variety. Uh huh. All the constants. Um, the things that are listed as aspirated are kind of aspirated, but for, um, the plain alveolar and for the velar, really those are affricates with ch. So the word for water is not to, it's to. Oh, okay. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, it has a few little adjectives, not too many. Ta, 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 cha, and ka. Um, the velars, which came from the proto language from, uh, uvulars, ka. And then I think the planes in the proto language turned into the ch series, 
I forget. Mm. Um, the, the historical linguistics of all of these um, related languages, Apache, which is very close to Navajo, further away, Hupa, and then, you know, you get way into the, the northern Athabascan languages. Mm-hmm. It can be harder sometimes to, to, to see the relationship. Um, in the past, there has not been really a whole lot of good information about Navajo online, except papers that talk about Navajo, because it's the best described um, Native American language, uh, probably. Um, and it is truly just unusual in many ways. Uh, for most linguists, it gets lots and lots of papers. People like to write papers about Navajo. Mm-hmm. What they write many fewer of is textbooks. Yes. Um, however, a few years ago, uh, one that was written in 1972 appeared at archive.org. And we're lucky because it was produced by the U.S. Indian Service, which means it cannot be copyrighted. <laughs> yes. Um, so we'll have a link to the archive.org. And for um, the Beaning Conlanger, that is absolutely the number one best um thing to check. It goes very systematically through lots of stuff, much of which is fascinating and which we will not get here, we will not talk about today. Yes. Just because there's, there's too much of it. There are also a lot of these papers are publicly available. I found a few different ones, uh, a d- few different papers. The one I want to call out, though, it, and we'll have links to all of this stuff in the show notes, is um, this one that's... Uh, Eddington and uh, Lachler, um, Computational Analysis of Navajo Stem Verbs and um, uh, Verb Stems. And uh, so one of the things, William, I'm sure you're very familiar with is the, the what is it, the aspect? Uh, it's like aspectual verb stems. Right. Like there's, um, oh, I don't have the, there's, there's like imperfective and perfective and Right. Um, uh, future, future and optative. Yeah, they get all, they're called mode in Navajo studies. They sort uh-huh. of, they sort of conflate tense aspect and mood. Um, yeah. Yeah. But in any case, there are these different morphological verb stems. And, um, the, the reason I'm linking this paper, they did sort of a computational analysis, but, um, the main thing that I, I want people to, focus on with that paper is they were doing an analysis and they found sort of what people already sort of knew is that there's not really any like easy rule to choose which what alternations occur it's not phonological or any in any way it's not not predictable in that way uh so sort of they sort of have to be uh like memorized. However, um, they did an analysis that sort of is meant to assimilate, uh, to simulate like an analogy process in order to say, okay, this, this, this stem sounds a little bit like this stem. So maybe the, maybe the other form of it will be the same. And that, that was able to predict the, the forms a lot better. So, the takeaway from this uh, is that really one thing that uh, you want might want to be looking at for conlangs, and I think we've we've mentioned this kind of thing before, is using that sort of analogical thinking whenever you're building a system that's going to have a lot of irregularity 
um, in order to sort of, sort of, uh, be like, okay, you get sort of like a, uh, a gestalt idea of these two forms are similar. So maybe they'll share another form and that, you know, obviously Navajo stems seem to be working this way. <laughs> uh, yeah, they're really confusing. Um, <laughs> Since we've talked about these, uh, well, let's wait. Um, so I found, right, there's this great book available online, and I recommend anyone who's curious about, well, even if you're not particularly curious about Navajo, go read it anyway, because it's fascinating. Uh, it talks in much better detail um, than you're going to find anywhere else, short of buying monstrously expensive books. Mm-hmm. And there's just interesting ideas that you can uh, find from it, simply even if you don't decide to go with the towering and terrifying um, edifice that is the Navajo verb. (laughs) Um, Okay, so there's that. And then I found another paper which I recommend, which is, what's it called? The Derivation of Meaning in the Navajo Verb. This is the most interesting stuff for me as a conlanger in Navajo is this way that they take very simple roots and extend the meaning by very um, various kinds of affixes. Um, and it's just an interesting way of thinking about stuff, uh, ways to think about things differently. Um, and so I'm just going to include a link to that. Um, it has, I mean, that's starting on page five. There's a really interesting discussion about how the, the root lope has a base meaning of act with a rope-like object or loop. Mm-hmm. Um, so one they had... Um, uh, a carrying the water bucket by a looped handle or lassoing something or catching a fish on a line. Um, but then when horse-drawn vehicles appeared in the culture, they included that to mean drive because you use reins. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when there were automobiles, they extended it. And again, despite the fact that there was no rope mm-hmm. um, and scales, you know, like weighing things, which were the old-fashioned balanced ones. So weight, weighing things, now has to do with this root, which, remember, back at the beginning, lo, just referred to, you know, working with uh, a loop um, or a rope. So there's, in terms of uh, coming up with new ways of thinking about how to work with your basic roots to have idiomatic meanings or stretch those meanings out a little bit, Navajo is... A great way. Most, I mean, there are lots of other languages that would be good for this, but um, it's a little bit easier now to find documentation on Navajo than lots of other languages. Yeah. I, I found a couple of things in this paper that sort of caught my eye. Um, there was this, um, ah, um, root, uh, it says handle a single roundish solid or compact object, but it sort of, it has, it extends to, the movement of the sun? Sure. In so certain ways? I have a whole section set out to talk about those classificatory verbs, so we'll get to those in a bit. Oh, okay. Um, All right. We can, we can jump back to it. Uh, so one really interesting thing about Navajo and most of the Athabascan family is that it has very few root nouns. Mm. Because it is so easy in most of these languages to turn verb phrases into nouns, that's the normal way of adding new vocabulary to the language. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you look at these dictionaries, um, you will see i or e at the end a lot, and that represents the fact that some phrase has been turned into a noun. Um, 
What was I going to say? Um, but the list of root nouns is pretty interesting. The the textbook example that I have uh, gives a list of most of them. <laughs> um, mm. So uh, in terms of derivations, um, you get things uh, like um, for teacher, which means someone who um, teaches others. Gun, be el um, with it you make an explosion. Beatrice is a whip, which means something that you do whipping with, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, then you get quite long. Um, the word for tank is kind of infamously huge, um, which I'm just not going to bother with here. <laughs> Mostly because I can't produce Navajo at that speed most of the time. Um, one other thing that I've talked about before on the show is this business of um, the role of animacy in word order. So in a transitive clause, mm -hmm. in which both the subject and the object are mentioned, mm -hmm. um, the most highly animate thing has to come first. Yes. Um, That's not... You've mentioned that several times, I think, on the podcast. Right. And... Among older speakers, um, there are eight levels of animacy, but um, that's breaking down a little bit. All right. And the way this is handled, if you have something of lower animacy performing an act on something of higher animacy, like, for example, a horse kicking a human being, then um, there's an alternation in the verb morphology to indicate that has happened. Oh, okay. It's the infamous, uh, sometimes you get called inverse voice. Um, uh huh. And that's how that's all handled. Again, lots of documentation of that online. Um, it's kind of tricky. People like to argue about it. We're not going to go into details here other than to mention it as an interesting possibility. Yes. Um, so because it's an Athabascan language, the rest of the show, I'm just going to talk about verbs. <laughs> um, yes. Templitic system which means that there's a template, lots of slots, 10 or 11, 12, depending on how you count, with the verb at the end. Um, and any given verb will have multiple slots filled. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine ever seeing a verb that has all of them filled, but a few will be filled. So, And lots of different yeah. things happen. Some of those prefixes mark subject and object. Certain kinds of prepositional phrases get um, grabbed in and become part of the verb complex. Um, various markers for aspect. So in addition to using a particular um, stem, you have to pick the right prefix oh, okay. to go with it. Um, and a whole bunch of other things that um, indicate various, sometimes surprisingly subtle shades of meaning. Okay. Uh, get worked into these so that you can you know, drive just very complex meaning. Now, it's not clear that the average Navajo speaker is thinking about their verbs this way. <laughs> um, <laughs> Most of the time, probably just certain patterns are memorized, but what's interesting is that subject and object marking uh, appears in surprisingly diverse places um, in any given verb. And if you look at a Navajo dictionary, there will be, in, in addition to all of the definitions that occur, um, there will be lots of information of, of these sidebars with vast charts to let you know which verbs, um, how they're conjugated. The, the big sort of verb template chart where you have the, you know, the different positions where the the sort of slots where, you know, certain morphemes belong in this slot or something. That's like a very popular model for 
Native American languages, and it can be useful, I think, for conlangers who are doing doing a very complex sort of agglutinative verb system. But you know how real that is within you know people's minds. That's just like an entirely different question. It's right. not. It's not like. It's not necessarily like people have a chart inside their heads. And to some extent, you might want to um, not want to um, get too caught up in following a, a template chart like that. You might want to sort of use it as a tool to scheme out the verb, but maybe add some little irregularities where some things can be in one or another slot, things like right. that. To show, it, the reason it's so fiendish in Navajo is because there are not one or two little irregularities. There are lots of them. Yes. Things okay. move into different slots, but only with some conjugations and not others. Um, there is a distinction between conjunct and disjunct prefixes, and some of them are extremely restricted in phonology and get crushed in various ways. Mm -hmm. Some disappear and only leave a tone change behind. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can get quite complex. Uh, uh, oh, we didn't really, we didn't get, to, we, you talked about all the consonants, but like, uh, there's, there's four vowels, yeah. like this, the square vowel system that contrasts on nasalization too. Yes. And uh, so you have plain vowels, nasalized vowels, high or low tone, and right. they can all combine. So you can get, you know, a high tone nasalized vowel. And that leads to uh, the crazy to diacritics. Yes, lots of annoyances to type. Um, this is, I mean, it's pretty standard. Uh, an yeah. acute accent represents high tone, and an ogonek, the little tail on the vowel, represents nasalization. Yes. Um, I just wanted to, to mention that just so we right. sort of completed. We won't go into a whole, whole lot of detail. Um, it's actually sort of interesting in the conjunct, um, prefixes, there's a, a pretty restricted set of consonants that occur there. You can't have, really? you can't have ejectives, for example. Um, mm -hmm. whereas the disjunct consonants, which occur for, uh, disjunct prefixes can have a wider range of things going on. Tell us, can you tell us really quick what, what is, what are those terms? Because those, those are terms that, you know, would be common in some Native American languages, but maybe some of our listeners wouldn't be familiar with right. them. Um, Frankly, they're just a way to say these set all sorts of horrible phonetic things happen to, and these other set retain their identity pretty strongly. Okay. So the ones that are closer to the verb are the conjuncts, and horrible things happen to them. Okay. All right. That's all that means. <laughs> um, and this is what you expect over time, right? Things that have been associated with the verb complex for longer get whittled down over time. Mm -hmm. um, some distinctions that might be made might disappear. Um, whereas things that are newer to being part of the verb um, retain more of their original identity. Mm -hmm. um, if you start reading about um, uh, any of the Athabascan languages, they talk about stem classifiers, which is really annoying. Because they don't classify anything, they refer to valency. It's this verb, you know, causative, detransitives, that sort of stuff is what's going on with there. That's just any time you, you are studying... A language that's been studied for a long time to get they develop those. their own terminology for describing things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, those classifiers also cause all sorts of horrible things to happen. Mm. <laughs> um, uh, just a sort of an interesting thing to note. Um, 
your pronouns are divided into singular and dual or plural. Mm -hmm. And the, the dual, dual plural marking is the same. Sometimes that marking can be used to represent a collective plural, but most of the time there's a third position slot in the template, da, um, which indicates three or more subjects or objects. Oh, okay. That is sort of a distributive plural. Hmm. Um, most of the time, verb paradigms writing things that will this, include this for you because it also weird things happen to it from time to time. Yeah, I was seeing terms in I was seeing terms in the the things I was looking at the duo plural and distributed plurals. Right, right. The distributed plural is the da prefix, which is effectively a plural. The dual is not used much, except if you don't, unless you actually do mean two, <laughs> um, and very occasionally as sort of a, a collective plural, but it's it's not really much used for that. Mm -hmm. Um, what else? Um, there are a few verb stems that have number suppletion. That is, entirely different verb stems are used depending on the number of either the subject or the object, depending on the verb. <laughs> there aren't too many of these. Um, uh, I wouldn't expect there to be many. Uh, so for the intransitives, we have like, um, to go out. So he went out is chinia. The two of them went out is chineaj. And the three of them went out is chekai. So even though the pronoun system does not distinguish systematically sing, uh, dual from plural, the verb stems in these particular instance does. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. and there's a smaller set of translatives that transitive verbs that distinguish the number of the direct object. Okay. Um, and that's the pattern you expect when you get number suppletion on verbs. Intransitives agree with the subject. Transitives agree with the object. So it's kind of this funky, um, ergative. Well, pattern. I mean, like, I was looking at that. I'm like, suppletive for number. When you say that, that's, that's, that sounds funny until you realize, wait, English does that <laughs> to, for, for to be only. Uh, we, we is yeah, on. that is a different stem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you could say, and it's, and it's well. also person and number. It's person. It's not just number, though. No. Yeah, yeah. But um, so it's not that unusual. It's not that um, weird from our own perspective. But um, I don't know. It's interesting. Right. Um, we've talked a little bit about the modes, which are a mix of tense aspect and um, mood stems mm -hmm. um, used for different things. In addition to that, there are 12 aspects mm -hmm. which interact with the modes, which some of which are aspectual in various complicated ways. No one verb is going to have all of these modes and aspects ever. Mm -hmm. um, often they won't make sense. <laughs> um, right. Like one of the aspects is the semifactive, which refers to taking a single step in a complex series of acts. Yes. Such as nishchich, which means I blink. Okay. Um... There's a diversitive aspect, which indicates that movement is taking place here and there. So uh, one of the example sentences is, I spent the summer in Phoenix doing odd jobs. Okay. Um, and then there's something which I always found funny because the name amuses me, called the cursive aspect, um, which just means the action takes place along a line through either time or space. Mm -hmm. So I was walking along, the war continues, so on and so forth. So that means... I mean, I have several books devoted just to figuring out Navajo verbs. 
Uh-huh. I have one that's very scholarly and is impossible to use. <laughs> um, I have a nicer one, which is actually designed for people who are trying to learn the language, which is much, it's less dense, but it's much, it's a much better read. Right. All right. So another thing that gets mentioned a lot for the Athabascan languages and Navajo, as always, does it a little bit more than most of the Athabascan languages, is it has uh, verbs that classify um, their direct object. Okay. And there will be three separate stems. One for handling items, for verbs like carry, put, take, give, that sort of stuff. Um, and that, those handle verbs are also used to refer to describe items at rest or that are being kept from moving. Um, there's just another set of verbs that refer to propelling things, setting them in motion. And yet another set of stems relating to things that are flying or otherwise moving independently. Okay. So... A lot on the internet when they talk about, oh, Navajo is these crazy classificatory verbs, it only gives the handle verbs, when in fact there are propel and fly. There's like three, there's a parallel sequence of these things. Huh, okay. Sometimes there are relationships, sometimes there are not between the roots. All right, so this is really interesting. We've talked about uh, number classifiers before many times, and some aspects of this resembles that, except it... It determines the verb that you're using. Yes, this was this is what I was jumping ahead on a little earlier. I think. Yeah, that's a lot of it is like size and shape going on. Right. So let's just go through the list and talk about some of the traditional conventional items. So the first one is for solid or compact, roundish, hard objects: mm-hmm. balls, bottles, apples, coins. More surprisingly, things like books or songs or news. Mm-hmm. Are also classified that way. Um, there's the non-compact matter, matter, excuse me, which are for things that are ball-like in shape or amorphous in texture. Mm-hmm. So, like a wad of hair, a wig, cloud, steam, um, even a bad smell. Mm-hmm. Um, mushy matter, which is for lard, dough, scrambled eggs, and it's also used by extension for things that are kind of decrepit, like a, a loose bag of flour. Or um, I heard a story once about some guy who was paralyzed in a war, and he used that to refer to himself as sort of a joke to ease tension in a Navajo uh, political, um, like a a council meeting. Um, (laughs) So people can play with these things. It's not like it's this very formal thing. There's a little bit of self-awareness about these. Okay. Single, flat, flexible objects like sheets of paper, towels, and so on. Um, I thought the, the slender, flexible object was interesting, can refer either to inanimate or animate things. So strings, belts, intestines, snakes. (laughs) Um, But it also includes things that come in pairs. Socks, scissors, even crossed legs. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. That's interesting. And it also can refer to a conglomerate of plural objects that go together naturally. So like a constellation, a herd of animals, um, or everything that was taken at a Berkeley. <laughs> right. Okay, so things that so... go to a, a, a group of things that go together naturally are spoken of with the slender flexible object classifier verbs. Uh, seems like it sort of expanded out in terms of its meaning. Right. Either it expanded out or it represents the um, blending of separate ones. Possibly. Yeah. Hard to know. Um, although I'm sure someone has studied it to find out. Slender, <laughs> stiff objects, brooms, planks, so on and so forth. Single animate object, alive or dead. Um, mm-hmm. but it also includes things that look like living things, so like a doll. Mm-hmm. 
load pack or burden is for big heavy things, um, but also some smaller things like a spoonful of something or a medicine pouch. This is the interesting one to me, and it comes up in a number of Native American languages that do this. A verb classifying anything in an open container. Huh. Glass of water, dish of food, box of apples, a corpse in a coffin, or dirt on a shovel. Oh, okay. It's the, the, that is interesting. It's, it, it's interesting whenever you see any of these classifier systems, um, to see what ends up being grouped into them. Yeah. It's, it sort of reminds me of like when I was learning Chinese and seeing really unexpected, um, mappings with, uh, classifiers like, um, with the, the numeral classifiers. And those are, those are all classif classifiers on, you know, numerals and nouns. And like, I would, I remember, um, again, this is in Mandarin, the chiao meaning like a long thin object sometimes can refer, can be used with, uh, dog, gao, things like that. So it's interesting to see how sometimes like, we might be able to identify some sort of core meaning to these things, but sometimes the mappings might, at least on the surface, look really arbitrary. Right. right. Um, you'd have to like think like historically or something to figure out how that happened. Uh, what was interesting about the open container classifier is that the propel verb is ka, um, and it also refers to just sort of things generally spreading out. Mm -hmm. um, so the idea is that anything in an open container that's being propelled, it's going to be scattered. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, the, the, I mean, there's a, a, a semantic relationship there that's sort of interesting. Um, mm. So next, rather confusingly, uh, Navajo has two separate classifier verbs for plural objects. <laughs> the first one is for a plurality of separable objects, things that are big enough to recognize as being sort of individually counted. Eggs, boxes, cats whatever. Um, and then the second one, unfortunately, includes some things you'd expect to be in the first set, but um, it also includes uh, collections of smaller things. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and then uh, Robert Young, who wrote the book I consulted this for, um, includes um, matter that moves by streaming, so things that can be poured or raked or pushed around, mm -hmm. um, like ashes or water, um, behave somewhat similar to these classif classificatory verbs, but is um, missing some parts. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was really interesting to me the first time I found it years and years ago, and remains interesting to me that everything is spoken of this way. And it, it, it intersects with the rest of the language in interesting ways. So that, for example, you can say, hand me the tobacco to someone. Mm-hmm. And depending on the verb you choose, it will say whether you mean the tobacco leaf whether you mean a pouch full of tobacco, whether you mean a box of cigars, whether you mean a single cigarette. Oh, that's interesting. Right. So you can have somewhat underspecified nouns because your verb is going to make very clear what it is you're talking about when you're handling things. Right, right. You're, it's basically putting the, the context somewhere else. Right. Um, that's interesting. Um, can we talk about also um, uh, this paper you mentioned it before, for it's the Robert Young paper, Derivation and Meaning in the Navajo Verb. Sure. It actually talks a lot about, is is talking a lot about these uh, classifiers, but talking about figurative meanings sure. as well. Uh, like, I, I, 
things that caught my eye was well, one one is that there's the the um the handling a single roundish solid or compact object so that's the like your solid round object the handle verb of that can refer to the movement of the sun yep and like there it's there's all these figurative extensions to that so like the the, the solid round compact one of those stems is also used for the base verb for to see wow because okay. the, because your eyeballs are involved <laughs> but like i was i was um i was no talking looking at this and like oh one of the the interesting ones is like you could put like a causative onto that yes and you're you're causing the sun movement and it refers to like um you know changing like deadlines or things like um it says yesterday the trader declared that my pawn period on my ring was up this basically and it's using he he caused the sun to set Right. On on you know you know on the on the pawn it's sort of like you it's it's sort of like taking that metaphor in there and uh, you know normally there wouldn't be any reason to put a causative onto any kind of movement of the sun so it's interesting that sort of that comes in with a figurative meaning yeah there's I mean Navajo uses these figurative meanings all the time yeah um, extensively pervasively. Um, to such a degree that sometimes very funny things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see if I can find this. In a book of, again, Robert Young that I have, um, he talks about this sort of derivational process, um, and he talks about the verbs for run. Uh-huh. So okay. singular run verbs are derived from a single root woad, the base meaning of which is flex or bend. With the null classifier, the verb theme woad is produced, and this theme, in combination with the adverbial aha apart, derives the verb vase aha woad with the meaning bend apart become disjointed. Okay. Um, as in shigang uh, aha woad, my arm became disjointed like it bent. With the shla classifier, the bend theme is transitivized to acquire the meaning cause to bend, and again in combination with aha, the verb vase aha woad is generated with the meaning cause to bend or flex apart, break by flexing. Mm-hmm. With L classifier, the causative transitive theme becomes mediopassive, serving to derive constructions in which the subject and object are the same. Self-flexing, then, is the metaphor for run, an action performed by flexing the legs. Okay. So, ashki, um, let me see if I can get this right. Ashki otade chelwot, the boy ran out of school. Okay. <laughs> um, so that's for one guy running. Okay, so dual run is derived somewhat deviously, that's his language, deviously <laughs> as a metaphor, but here one in which the two subjects are literally described as chasing each other. An intransitive verb theme, ni ocha, um, and its modal variants carry the meaning flee, as in, uh, I fled the cave. Um, uh-huh. classifier produces a causative transitive theme to chase. Um, when the direct object of the causative transitive theme is reciprocal ahi, each other, the L classifier replaces la and takes the shape, blah, blah, blah. Um, this theme carries the figurative meaning dual run. So the two boys are running. Uh-huh. Is the two boys are chasing each other down the road. Okay. So a completely different... Ex- one person running takes a completely different expression from two people running. That's 
Very interesting. And also, like, you don't really expect Run to be like that. Right. <laughs> so, because it seems like it would be such a very common verb that people would just have, but apparently Navajo has that very interesting irregularity there. Yes. So I, this, I, when I first read that, I was so flabbergasted that I made a blog post about it. <laughs> um, just sort of talking about this stuff. And it's really interesting. I mean, all, all of the ways in which... I mean, Navajo, the verb presents such formidable challenges in sort of analyzing and understanding in the first place mm-hmm. that people try to write things and it's like, oh my God, what's going on? And so because it's hard always to know what's going on, all of these metaphorical extensions... Um, and idiomatic extensions have to be discussed. Uh huh. And so they tend to be presented more upfront than you might see in other discussions of language. You know, this prefix means this. Right. So there is an indefinite object, um, uh, prefix. Ah, sometimes is, sometimes just a glottal stop, um, and refers to a something or someone unspecified. And so you can say, ashri aya, which means the boy is eating something. You don't know what. However, if you want to be polite, the indefinite function also says if you need to talk about genitalia. <laughs> okay. Right. So, shot uh, means I have gonorrhea, which means something hurts about me. Ooh. Okay. Very vague, though, because you need to be a little bit more polite. Um, interestingly, the language also has a prefix which sort of acts like an aerial direct object. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about um, spaces... Um, so, kone honidoi, which means it's hot in here. Uh-huh. Um, and, and other sorts of things that allows you to talk about, uh, spaces as, and then it fills in the same slot as, um, other pronouns. So it's an interesting, um, thing going on there too. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to throw in another one of these ones that I found in the other paper, uh, with Dlad, just because I thought it was interesting is so rip, tear, uh, burst. That one gets some interesting sort of extensions. Um, it, one is like my newspaper subscription expired. So it was like torn. Mm-hmm. Somehow that's expired. I plowed my field. That makes sense. You know, I ripped up the ground. Sure. So, um, and then my employer flew into a rage at me. Uh, it's, he ripped him, ripped something off of himself. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> oh, this one's awesome. Oh, so, so talking about the 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 awe issue in um, is that the sun movement one? No. Yeah, the sun movement one. Um, bizet de I'm plotting against him. Literally, I've started to carry his death along. Yes. Okay. Yes. I like that, was... that one a lot. <laughs> oh, that is... I got into an argument with the teacher. Literally, I rubbed words against each other with the teacher. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So anyway, the, the long, long story short, there's lots of ways that this sort of, it's, it's really sort of a, a grammatical feature gets, gets, that gets a lot of figurative idiomatic use. So Right. And they have yeah. these little stems, a single syllable at the end of the word, and mm-hmm. literally hundreds of other prefixes can happen, doing things yeah. changing transitivity, 
changing aspect in various ways, interacting with kind of adverbial elements, kind of prepositional elements. So enormous amounts of meaning are drawn out of sometimes quite simple stems. All right. That was a lot of good information, uh, William. And uh, before we go, is there, are there any other sort of thoughts you want to talk about with Navajo before um, we wrap up? No, I think really it's just uh, if you can find good information on it, it's sometimes a little bit hard. Um, mm. But not if you have a good library, get the Morgan and Young Monstrous Dictionary. It's huge. Okay. Um, don't buy it yourself. I did, but it's it's a doorstop. It's huge, and the paper is very thin. Um, <laughs> it's a little, it's, and it, you need a, a magnifying glass to read it. It's it's a remarkable production. But or get it on. You can get it on uh, CD or DVD. That's much nicer. It is loaded with historical information about the language. Page after page after page of hundreds of historical roots how they relate to other Athabascan languages, and how they relate to Navajo. Mm -hmm. So that's really valuable just to get an idea of how language change works. Mm -hmm. um, for me, the most interesting thing about Navajo is just to... is inspiration, not necessarily to um, mimic directly, but to get an idea for how differently you can go about taking very simple roots and producing new meaning. Mm-hmm. Many, many interesting things about the language, which we do not have the time to go into here, but that's the, the big thing. Just think about completely different ways of constructing a lexicon. There are deeper things um, that the language has to teach language invention, language inventors, rather, about how language actually works, mm -hmm. um, but that would require a much longer rambling talk from William that would last too long. So we'll save yeah. that for some other time. And I, I am, we pointed out a little bit of that anyway. So, uh, with that, I'm, uh, I think we can wrap up the show. Um, thank you everyone for listening. And I'm just going to say happy conlang. Thank you for listening to conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a conlang or natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our contribute page for details. Web space for conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device.